Welcome to this conversation. I'm Teresa Keller, your host, and my guest today is Scrapper Brody. Scrapper Brody is helping us kick off Black History Month, but we're not talking about the bigger picture of Black history, despite the fact that it's a fascinating story of great achievements of African Americans, despite all kinds of obstacles put in their way. Today, the Black history is a little more personal. It's Scrapper's family history. Scrapper Brody, first of all, is very important to Emory and Henry College. So I want to go a little bit over that before we get into the details. But Scrapper Brody. Thank you. You were the first Black football player and one of the first Black students at Emory and Henry. And you are in the Sports Hall of Fame. Why are you in the Sports Hall of Fame? I've wondered also, except for... uh... You know, everyone who wants, who desires to be in a Hall of Fame or recognized in that fashion, hope that they earned it. You know, we because you end up among people who who have achieved a great deal, and so I I hope that's how my teammates and others who have been inducted feel about my contribution as well. It sounds to me like you're saying you don't want to be there for being the first black player. You want to be there because you earned it. And I think there was something about a lot of interceptions and some pretty spectacular play on the field. Well, and I hope that's the case. Uh, If you go back uh, 50 years, Teresa, it's interesting to me because I never knew records were being kept. But yes, I, I think when I left there, I had three records that were uh, attributed to me. And if I'm not mistaken, there's one record even now that still has my name next to it, which I now think is uh, a tremendous achievement since there's been probably hundreds of players that have played over 50 years who had an opportunity to break that record, but have not. I love it, Scrapper. What was the record? It's the career interceptions. I think they have me uh, down for 21 or 22. And I think the closest someone has come to it has been maybe 19 or 20. But uh, it's uh, it's one of two or three records that were established during the, that glory year when Larry Bales and Sonny Wade and others played. Well, congratulations on that. I am such a football fan, and that's just heroic in my book. But you did something else that we never have talked about. I've interviewed you before, and uh, we we can't spend a lot of time on it now because we've got the, the history question. But you were in the Air Force. I don't think we've ever talked about that. Oh, yes. That was three years, eight months, 11 days, 14 hours, and <laughs> 23 minutes of serving my country. Does that mean that you didn't like it and you couldn't wait to get out? (laughs) I think one thing I learned in college was that the shortest distance between A and B is a straight line. So I I did what I had to do to go in and get out. But in 30 seconds after I graduated from Emory, I went to Prince George's County, Maryland, toward elementary school when I got my draft notice. And uh, you've heard me mention my four friends who who were killed during, during that uh, period of time. It was a moral issue for me to join, go in and serve my time so that I, I, I wanted to at least honor them by 
by being in the military. And so I did join the Air Force because I wanted to, uh, primarily because they had a delayed enlistment program that allowed me 90 days before I had to enter the service. What was the, if you had to say my primary responsibility, what I spent most of my time doing, what would be the answer to that? I was in administration. I was in personnel, which opened up my eyes to a whole nif- different career because in college I was uh, was on track to be a, a teacher. And when I went into the military, all because I could type, <laughs> I got routed, I got tracked into personnel and it opened up a whole new career field for me. So when I came out of the military, I went into administration instead of going into back into education. And I know you've worked for private businesses and for government and you've done all kinds of things. But since that's not our topic, we're going to have to leave that at the moment. Today, we're talking about Scrapper Brody's history and specifically You've been focused on your sixth great-grandfather, and you have spent years trying to figure out who he was and to trace your ancestry and figure out the precision of where he came from. I want to start with asking you, why is that so important to you? It has grown over time to be be more and more important. Uh, Very quickly, the the beginning of this was when my... uh, my uncle, Uncle Jim, who was from West Virginia, but he was a school teacher in New York City. When he retired in the mid-80s, he had heard during his lifetime about, in our family, there was a slave named John Brody. They believed the slave lived in Southwest Virginia, and they believed the slave had been freed prior to the Civil War. And so John, uh, uh, my Uncle Jim, had no more information than that, those three pieces of information. And so when he retired, he made it his mission to investigate and research that rumor or that folklore. I had never heard of it myself, uh, but Uncle Jim did. Uncle Jim was in New York City. I was here in Washington State, and he did a lot of, made a lot of efforts to get me involved in that research. And I I kept avoiding him because I didn't see the practicality of it. I'm trying to raise a family, keep a career, and I just didn't see the practicality of trying to find out about some old person that I'd never heard of before. But Uncle Jim ended up being successful. He he did find that there was, in fact, a, a John Brody. He did find that John Brody did live in Southwest Virginia, and he he found out that John Brody was actually emancipated in 1793. And then Uncle Jim passed away. And because the family had the perception that I was working with Uncle Jim on this project, I was the only one that he really spoke to about it. Uh, they ended up shipping me his papers, his work papers. And uh, it took a little while for me to open up the box, but this gets to the heart of your question. When I opened up the box and I began to look at what was inside the box, there was information there that Jim had not pursued. He was focused on three things and other information he had found, he did not focus on those things. I began looking at those items closer. Questions were popping up about, well, who was John, you know, and 
the fact that he lived in Southwest Virginia for nearly 100 years, how come I'd never heard of him? That sort of thing. But the other driver was I felt guilty, to be honest. I felt that Jim had worked on his own, that I had not been of much help to him. And I thought, in honor of Jim, I should at least pay some attention to what he had done and see if I can take it a step further. Well, that and step further became ultimately a, a passion. And you spent years uh, working on it. What were the big questions that you needed answered? Well, I had heard that he he lived in Southwest Virginia. Well, where did he live? I heard that he had lived 100 years. Well, what did he do during those 100 years? What was his life like as a slave? Uh, because half of those 100 years, he, he was free. He was he was uh, a slave half of that time. Who was the family that owned him? And when I heard the name Campbell, I realized, well, I know Campbells. I, you know, I went to school with people named Campbell. And, you know, what's the... And then, most of all, I heard that, that he was believed to be the half-brother of William Campbell, the, the famous military commander that led the fight at the Battle of Kings Mountain. So these are some of the early things that I began to find out about, and a lot of it had been known. A lot of it had been written about. I just didn't know about it. Scrapper, may I interrupt for a second to say this is where kind of our family ancestry uh, crosses paths. In my home, I had heard about Colonel William Campbell for years because we had ancestors who fought at the Battle of King's Mount. And when you were sitting, in, and, and that battle was led by Colonel William Campbell. You were here in Southwest Virginia from Washington, where you are now, and you were spending time while you were here checking out this ancestry. And you visited with us, and you and Fred and I were in the kitchen, and you made a comment at my kitchen counter that stabbed me in the heart. You, you were talking about Campbell, and I said, oh, yeah, my dad was into that. He's Sons of American Revolution. And you said, I'm in the Sons of the American Revolution as well. And you said, Colonel William Campbell owned my great-grandfather. Yes. I mean, it, it, that just is such an emotional statement to hear. I mean, you don't say he was enslaved and... It was a horrible system. You said he owned him. And yes. what does that make you feel if it tears me up to hear you say that? Well, I'm glad you're asking the question in that fashion. I refer to in my speeches as John having been a slave. It was a peculiar form of servitude is the way that I phrase it. John, John, I believe now, arrived in Southwest Virginia as a four- or five-year-old boy, young boy. Will Campbell, William Campbell, was similar in age, close in age. The two of them grew up together. And he was initially owned, John was initially owned by Charles Campbell, William's father. And when Charles passed away, John became the property of William Campbell. So here you have two boys who were uh, 
aside from the the color issue and and the status of slave and free, they were also, I believe, friends. Okay, but then one day you look up and and William is in fact the master of John, a different role, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that really changed things in that relationship. And I say that because there is no evidence that I've found where John was ever treated as a slave in the traditional sense. John never got assigned to work out in the fields. John was never assigned to work in the house. I cannot even find where John had had any similar experiences that you think slaves typically had. There's other evidence that drive me to this conclusion that there was something more than the conventional slave relationship. John was uh, given his freedom. You know, who gave slaves freedom? I mean, as a course of business, who gave a fr freedom to slaves 60 years before the Civil War even came about. And I think when John, excuse me, when William passed away, it was in his will that John be freed. I don't know that there's a lot of accounts where the will of a master says, free my slaves at my death. There's another peculiar thing, and that is when John, when William died, it was approximately 12 years before John was freed, even though the will stated that he was to be freed. I think that that was because John's life would have changed dramatically had he been freed. I don't think you wake up one day as a slave, next day you wake up, you're free, and the world changes for you, okay? Because you don't what do walk you around. Do? Yeah, yeah, you don't, don't walk, walk around with a sandwich sign that says "I'm free," and and society recognizes that and treats you differently. I think there was uh, some recognition that if John was removed from the protection of the Campbell family, which was a prominent family, that he would have been exposed to all the things that slaves weren't normally exposed to that he was protected for 12 years. And then the last thing, Teresa, is that when he was freed by his daughter, who subsequently became John's master, Sarah Preston, who married Francis Preston, when he was eventually freed in 1793, he was given almost 900 acres of land. Now, who gives a slave... <laughs> The freedom, who delays the freedom, and when they do freedom, who gives you land for him and his family to live on? So all of those things, from a very practical standpoint, causes you to think there may be something a little different here than our traditional, conventional view of what slavery entails. So that's something different. It sounds to me like what, what you're laying the groundwork to say is that there was suspicion that your sixth great-grandfather was actually a half-brother to William Campbell. I think it lit, 
that gave weight to that theory that John and William were half brothers. That was the only explanation uh, one could arrive at based on those factors. Okay, Scrapper Brody, my guest today, kicking off Black History Month on this conversation and talking about tracing down his own family history, and that we've just gotten to the point where there is a thought that maybe Scrapper's sixth great-grandfather was the half-brother of Colonel William Campbell, which meant that he would be half-white. What does that mean to you, Scrapper? Did you, did you, would you want that to be the case, or would you be upset if that were the case? Does it make a difference to you? It, uh, it uh, did not then, and it does not now. I was in pursuit of what's, what is the truth. Uh, I laid those things out because I think that's kind of the, 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 the framework that I was working in. How was he and why was he treated differently? But then you look at the other side of this. There is not a lot of evidence or there's not many accounts where a slave was fathered by a master who was allowed to stay in the household or around the household and grow up with his half-sibling, okay? Especially if you were a prominent member of society. So, so if you know the story, for example, of Frederick Douglass, there's a similarity there. Frederick Douglass was fathered by his slave master. And, and once he was born, his slave master went to great pains to relocate the mother and even relocate Frederick. It's, it was very unusual for, it would have been very unusual for a prominent family such as the Campbells to have had a slave sibling in the household, around the household, uh, growing up with his half-brother. That piece didn't seem to fit for me, so I thought, well, maybe it's important that I continue to, to look into this. You had the theory that you investigated, was he a half-brother? And there's still huge questions, but there's another theory that's seeming to become more real and more truthful to you. Tell us about that branch of the investigation. There's, there's so much depth to a lot of these questions. The prevailing thought was that John and William were half-brothers, but I had some questions about this. I did the DNA test uh, 12, 13 years ago. I located the Campbell representative who manages the Campbell's DNA family tree. They analyzed my DNA information with theirs and came back saying, there's no match here. We don't. We don't have a match, but I was cautioned to not accept that as the absolute because you should have had several examinations or analysis to see if that all continues to hold true. So I put that aside. I was familiar by this time with a book called Paths of Glory. Okay, so it's kind of like my Bible right now. <laughs> Paths of Glory, there's a reference in this, in this book between... Campbell's wife and John, and she's asking John, where did you come from? Which I thought was a fascinating 
question. If you're living around John and her husband, why why would you not assume that it was his half brother? You know, right. why why are you asking where did you come from? So there's a passage in there about John being John says, I'm from a place I was kidnapped. So I started looking into that. And it, it the story bears out. I mean, there's the place that he he names bears out. There's, in fact, a place in India that he says he's from, he was kidnapped from, that bears out. A historian, not just me, has established that to be fact. So the new theory is that John was kidnapped when he was four or five years old, put on a ship with other slaves, brought to Annapolis, was purchased by William Campbell's father, and brought to Southwest Virginia, where he was now introduced to young boy William, and they grew up, and that they never were half-brothers. Okay, if he was kidnapped from India, is the theory that he was Indian, or was he African and was somehow in India and got kidnapped? Yes, I've had several conversations with genealogists about this. The, the evidence indicates that he, he came from India. The when you look at the DNA, it looks like I, I have roots that go back to Africa, some from, from that part of the country in India as well, but majority of it is Africa. And I'm told that there was mass migrations from Africa to India. And so I don't know where John's father and his grandfather originated. It, it's highly probable they originated from Africa. So that's why my DNA reflects Africa as the place of origin. But your DNA also showed some uh, connection to India. And the rumor was, well, I don't know if it's rumor or fact, but your sixth great-grandfather, John Brody, had straight hair. Yes, yes. We just It's hard to tell that after a couple of things. I have no idea how long John's ancestors lived in India. I don't know how much their DNA got influenced by the Indian culture. But John is reported to have had straight hair. And I'd like to point out that, you know, my grandfather's name was John, lived in Glade Spring. He had straight black hair. And my and my uncle Jim had straight black hair. Uh, if you look at some of my older pictures, I don't have some of the characteristics, at least the hair quality that you normally see with people who are more closely direct descendants of Africa. I don't have that type of hair texture, but I, my hair was was different than what uh, you would expect from someone who's more closely associated with Africa. How big of an indicator do you think the straight hair is? I mean, that lineage would have come down to your relatives too, if it was Indian. That piece probably still with some questions. But the key thing that happened recently is, and, and back in October, was a second analysis was done of the DNA information between myself and the Campbell's DNA. This time, the DNA was looked at in terms of the Y chromosome. And the Y chromosome dictates the origin. My Y chromosome dictates that the very first person in my family 
came from Africa. If you look at Campbell's DNA, the very first person came from Europe. And the conclusion is there's no matter where John came from, India or Africa, he did not come from Europe. <laughs> there was no way that Campbell and John could be, could have been related. That's pretty much settled science, if you will, that John and Campbell are not half-brothers, or else his Y chromosome would have reflected European uh, origin just as Campbell's. Okay, Screppers, we have ruled out the idea that your great sixth great-grandfather was the son of his master. So where do you go from here? Can you exhume your... Well, it may, it may never be an absolute answer to that question. The key issue for me at the time was, is the rumor or is the, the folklore or is the what's been evolved as fact that John and William were brothers? I think that's resolved. I think that was what the original pursuit of the truth was all about. I think that's been handled. I don't know how much time I want to spend on, and I don't know how feasible it is to try to narrow it down to, did it, is it India or is it Africa? You know, that's not of major importance to me. If that's the 5% that I don't know yet, then I'm okay with it. <laughs> I think there's other things, other questions. I, I would rather look at why was there a difference in treatment? I've, what And what would it be like to live as a slave in Southwest Virginia who's not in the fields working or in the house working? You know, you, I call him in, a betweener. He was in between cultures. He was in between the racial issues of that time. And to what extent? How did how did the other slaves feel about him? Those are the kinds of questions I find now fascinating to to explore and to understand and know more about. Well, Scrapper, our time is really up, but it's there is a parallel here, I think, to your personal history and the importance of your personal history to you in relation to the, the history of African-Americans in this country. How would you conclude about the importance of Black History Month in this country? Uh, I think that's a, a, a really difficult and maybe even a complicated question, and certainly the response would take a lot of time. But I would like to just say this. That's why I have grown up having only really one black hero, and that's Dr. Martin Luther King. Dr. King spoke about content of character, and that has been uh, on my heart for all these years, that whatever I am, I hope my character is worthy of the friends that I have, the opportunities that I've been given, my legacy. I hope that People will look at me, you know, sometimes I, I cringe when I hear that I'm the first black this or black that. I would rather, um, I, I think I would prefer to be known as, well, he was a guy that came there and he made a contribution. He was somebody that made a difference. If he didn't make a difference then, he's lived his life in a way that hopefully has made a difference. That it was his character and not his race that that is responsible for that and, and today I'm, I'm concerned because when i hear about our our racial strife and our and our how we define problems and how we define solutions 
I do not hear content of character being included in that discussion. Well, Scrapper Brody, my guest today at the kickoff of Black History Month, I think that we can certainly say that your character is exemplary. You have made a huge difference at Emory and Henry and in your career. And I think the question is, are we worthy of being your associates? I thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you very much for allowing me to speak. Thank you. Scrapper Brody, my guest today. Thank you for tuning in to this conversation. You can hear this program Wednesdays at six, Sundays at two. And if you want to hear previous episodes or something you missed, you can go to the WEHC-FM website, click on archives and find this conversation. In the meantime, we hope you'll stay tuned to 90.7.